All right, well, great pleasure to be here. Uh, delighted to have such a big audience. Sorry that I wasn't able to come and have a sandwich with you and mix earlier. Um, I've lived in the US for 20 years. When I left, it was called British Rail, and it was terrible. It's not called British Rail anymore, but it's still terrible. And they, and they cancelled my 10 o'clock train. I said, well, so how else do I? They just have to wait for the next one. So luckily, you know, by, uh, I've just here been the, by the skin of my teeth. So, so great pleasure to be here. And this is really about the, uh, the ILA committee, which has been, uh, what, th three years now. Uh, and so an opportunity to, to look at what we're doing. So I'll... Uh, so particularly appropriate, this is a meeting of the ILA group as well, and I'm also very honoured to be the first of this uh, of the term, right? So I'm very, I'm delighted. So I'll talk a little bit about the mandate of the committee. Um, I'll talk about sea level rise. Some of you may all know know this already, but I'll talk about the work of the IPCC and some of the criticisms of it. Um, and then we'll I'll talk about the impacts of sea level rise on maritime zones. And as uh, Daniel said, we're, I'm the co-rapporteur, so we have two rapporteurs for this committee, myself, and I'm the Law of the Sea person, so I'm looking at the Law of the Sea, the international law parts of it, uh, public international law parts of it, and then my, my uh, co-rapporteur is uh, Jane McAdam from the University of New South Wales, who's a very distinguished expert on, on uh, migration and, uh, and refugee uh, situations, in, uh, and she's written very widely on the impact climate change as well. So she's looking at the more human side. I've got a couple of her slides at the end, just so you can see, uh, fill out that, but really I'm just going to talk about the maritime zone part of it. Um, okay, so this is the mandate of the Sea Level Rise Committee, set up in 2012. As a result of the findings of a committee that's meeting, been meeting for eight years or more on baselines, they've been looking at the legal aspects of baselines. It doesn't sound riveting, but it's actually really quite interesting. Uh, and they've come up with some quite interesting conclusions. And so, as a result of their recommendation, the uh, committee of the ILAs uh, approved the setting up of this committee. So we were supposed to study the possible impacts of sea level rise and the implications under international law of the partial and complete inundation of state territory. Uh, or depopulation thereof, in particular small island and low-lying states, and then to develop proposals for the progressive development of international law in relation to the possible loss of all or parts of state territory, the maritime zones due to sea level rise, including impacts on statehood, nationality and human rights. It's a pretty wide mandate. And also, we're also supposed to be, um, the most exciting bit is to develop progressive development proposals. So... Uh, that's the members of the committee. You probably can't see that, but it's. Uh, no. We are quite lucky in the sense that. Um, which is the uh, the light? Is it the middle? Is it? Oh yeah, there. Okay. So we actually have a number of people who've written about this as well. I have with some twenty years ago, thirty years ago, God in heaven, forty years ago, <laughs> and so has David Caron from the U.S., who's now on the uh, U.S. Trains Tribunal, and we also have. Uh, uh, from the Netherlands, uh, uh, Fred Solnes, where is he? Uh, yeah, just seems up there somewhere. Uh, yeah, but he's there anyway. He's also written about this very early on. And uh, a, number, a number of geographers, Clive Schofield from the uh, University of... Uh, it's Wollongong University in, uh, in outside Sydney. 
so quite, it's a really very highly motivated and, uh, and, and well-informed committee. Some of them aren't quite so motivated. So this is the basically mandate. So I'm doing the Lord Sea issues, Jay McAdams doing forced migration, and then we're both looking at the progressive development. Um, uh, first, a little bit about climate change and the impacts of sea level rise. Um, most of you will know about this. Over breakfast at All Souls uh, earlier this week, I was asked if I was optimistic. I said, you can't be optimistic about sea level rise. It's pretty diabolical. The question is how bad it's going to be and how quickly. Um, and with the term that we're actually using now, because sea level rise has always existed. I've been doing some work on the Sargasso Sea, the little islands of Bermuda, right in the middle of the, of the North Atlantic. They actually reckon they've sunk by about three uh, three or four feet in the last 200 years um, and that's nothing to do with climate change that's just because for geological reasons so we're talking about relative sea level rise the way in which it's changing in relation to what else is going on so that some of the uh, normal reasons are shifts in the earth crust um, the UK for example is actually which way is it going that way isn't it it's going down in the east and coming up on the on the west, right? So the east, the east coast is having inundation from sea level rise, but also just naturally. Um, volcanic activity, we've got some pictures of islands that appear, so islands are appearing, although some are disappearing. Uh, melting of the ice caps, particularly um, the, uh, and this is the, uh, sort of have to remember, it's the bits where it's floating, right? So the, what I call the gin and tonic issue, it's when you put the, the, put the, put the, the ice in the gin and tonic and it just begins to melt gradually, right? That's, it's already in the water, it doesn't raise the, sea, the level of the gin and tonic, it's the same. But when, it's, when we've got water, water melting from land masses, particularly there, we're talking about Antarctica and Greenland, we're going to have some impacts from that as well. And then thermal expansion, just because the oceans are actually getting warmer. We've had four uh, Category 5 hurricanes this year, which is really unusual. And the main reason for that, some do El Nino as well, because it's not an El Nino year, but because uh, the, the temperature of the North, in the North Atlantic is like one degree centigrade higher than usual, which increases the intensity of it. Not the frequency, they tell us, but the intensity. And so the impacts are obvious, changing coastlines because the water's higher, uh, people moving, and then ultimately inundation of islands, and of course the changing natural resources, fish stocks are moving, and stocks may move in and out of zones, either because they move or because the zones move. So that's really the sort of issues that we're looking at. 2007 uh, was the, uh, uh, the fourth uh, assessment report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Excessively sanguine, really. This is the, the basic uh, proje projections that it made. About four to 65 centimetres by 2000 and 2100. So only just over half a metre. Um, that was their prediction in 2007, and they got a lot of stick for that. There was a lot of academic criticism, and that's from some, more of this from somebody else with permission. But this is a kind of review of the academic literature and the working groups after 2007, and that's wildly different, right? So you see right at the top, is this minimalist view of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Those of you who know about the way that it functions, it works on percentiles and general consensus. So it's a general, so it has you know, medium, 
medium uh, predictability and medium accuracy, etc. So it works on kind of uh, it's a consensus sort of proposal, but it doesn't. Not everything has. They don't have to agree on everything, but they agree on kind of whether things are likely, what likelihood they are. So it tends to be fairly conservative. Uh, but look at these other predictions, and the the, uh, uh, the the German working group set up here was was the big one here, WBGU, which actually took us off to 2,300, and we're beginning to look at they're suggesting it could be up to five meters, but you know also could be only two meters. So they're <laughs> giving themselves a bit of option here, but basically this is looking pretty conservative. So this is this is more the sort of span that we're talking about. And the result of that was uh, they looked at what had happened between 19, this is figures fig at least from IPCC, 1993, no, it's the little one they did before the Copenhagen meeting, 1993 to 2008. And what's quite surprising, and this is what my geographer colleague has, calls the bathtub effect, it isn't like the gin and tonic, because you put the ice in the gin and tonic, it goes up the same level in all, in all around the glass. In the, in the real world, it, impacts some places more than others for reasons of tides and winds, etc. So this is actually, so you find some hot spots. One of the most horrific hot spots, of course, is here, which is in the Western Pacific, where there are a lot of very small islands. Caribbean sort of not quite so bad, but these are the other hot spots. So blue is, uh, blue is less and red is more, up to five centimeters. So trends are that it's going to be, uh, it's going to be differing which is quite counterintuitive, I think. And so uh, assessment report five, which came out at the end of 2013, beginning of 14, um, much less sanguine than, than, uh, than the, the, the fourth report. Um, the predictions are much larger than AR4, mainly because of improved modeling, they say. So um, they're taking the view, whoops, didn't mean to that. They're taking the view that it's, up it's actually 98 centimetres is their proposal, but we can call it a metre to be, without uh, being too pedantic, about one metre by 2100. And then they do point out with a strong regional pattern, with some places significant deviations from the globe, some more or less, some will be more. And then there's the whole issue of the Antarctic ice shelf, which has been emerged since then. Uh, and we could have a, if there's a collapse of the Western Atlantic ice shelf, which some scientists are suggesting could happen, that would be another meter. But we're working on the principle of the IPCC, which is, you know, the general view, which is about a meter. Um, now, it's worth putting this in some perspective, right? Um, the working, the team that I'm working with, the, the chair is Davil Vidas, who's got a very large grant from the uh, Norwegian Science Foundation to look at what is being called the Anthropocene. So this is like a new geological era, epoch, which is now has been so impacted by the, impact, by the influence of, of uh, humankind that it's actually, we're actually maybe, he says we're changing the, the way in which future geologists, what they would look like, these future geologists in 40 million years, I don't know, they probably won't look like us very much, if there are any, uh, but they, uh, when they start to dig down the historical record, they'll find us, you know, it's going to be plastics and other different things. But just to keep this in perspective, um, this is where we are today, and this is where we are. We would be with a on a, on this scale. This is the sea level rise in terms of meters on this axis, and this is uh, temperature changes. So we're looking at 
around one, you know, one point five uh, and change in centigrade. This is this is the middle axis today. And in the past, twenty thousand years ago, at the height of the ice age, the last ice age, it was more than a hundred meters less sea level rise. Right. So that's that's when people crossed into the across the, uh, uh, the north of the Atlantic and other migrations were made, possibly to Australia as well. Um, and there have also been points in time when it's been a lot more. So the, the Pliocene, three, three million years ago, uh, that's, this, is, this is meters, not centimeters, right? So this is 50, that's nearly, that's about 40 meters higher than it is today. The world would look very different if you, you can actually buy a mug where you can pour hot water in it and it shows how the earth changes. It's not it's quite controversial, but the principle is large areas would disappear, like Florida and central Australia, for example. But 50 meters a lot and 40 million years, the famous Eocene event, um, where for some reason there's a huge um, uh, eruptions of uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere for reasons we don't really know. It certainly wasn't that kind. Um, but this huge event resulted in, uh, we're looking at nearly about 80 meters of sea level rise. And it took 150 uh, million years for the system to cleanse itself of the carbon dioxide and actually return to something that we would recognize. So that's just keep this in mind. There's no reason why the Earth should be the way it is. And this is sort of to give you the... We're in the Eocene, right? And that's the last uh, 11,500 years. And that's been pretty stable. And the argument is that all our rules, all our public international rules, going back to Grotius, going back to the Romans, all within that period, right? So we've worked it on the principle that we things won't change. So if I see this little piece of land sticking up above the ocean and I want to draw a baseline from it, I figure it's going to be there tomorrow, right? And next year. Um, these are the things that we're talking about will change. And this is the reason why it's going to change. When you actually see the amount of ice there is in Antarctica, this is from a, drill, a friend of mine, Stanford, who's part of the drilling program. I mean, these are enormous amounts of ice, which, are, which if they start to, to melt, will, uh, will have a huge impact. Um, this is the co comparison between the ice in Antarctica and the ice in Greenland. So there's a lot in Greenland, um, but there's a lot more in ice in, in Antarctica. This is pretty crude science stuff, but just to give you some, just to remind you where, how much water there is actually tied up in these in these ice caps. And some of the reasons why it started to the Greenland ice cap, for example, this has actually been a good year for it this year, but. One of the reasons it started to melt much more quickly than scientists suggest, back to the gin and tonic, it didn't just melt you know, slowly as, uh, in an even way. It started to, much more, to melt much more quickly because of the uh, formations of cracks, crevasses in the ice, and these so-called moulins. These are about three, four or five feet across, and so these are actually huge, huge conduits for water to find their way right down to the, to the bottom where it's impacting with the earth and to actually expedite. So it's melting from both sides, right? So that's, you know, that's part of the, that they discovered that, which wasn't anticipated. Right, so what are the, what are the impacts on maritime zones? And I'm grateful to my colleague from uh, Wollongong, uh, Clive Schofield, and he has this brilliant uh, uh, research student who's actually a 
PowerPoint uh, genius, and you'll see some of his work in a minute, which I acknowledge. <coughs> so those of you who haven't done Lord of the Sea yet, or sometime since you did it, just to remind you, uh, we've divided the, uh, the, the ocean up into a lot of maritime zones. Uh, first of all, from the baseline, so this is, the, this is really what my group is looking at here. Uh, this is the baseline. So this is, this is a coastal baseline here. Everything to the landward of that is internal waters. Uh, 12, and this is actually the technical hydrographic symbol for uh, nautical miles, I'm told. Right? So, uh, it's not meters. Uh, so 12-mile territorial sea, you're allowed 12 uh, nautical mile uh, contiguous zone. You're allowed a 200-mile exclusive economic zone. The 200 miles stretches from the internal waters uh, from the baseline. Uh, then you're also allowed a continental shelf, remember. Even those states that don't have a continental shelf are allowed 200 miles, but if you have one that sticks out further, you have an extended shelf. And then, of course, beyond that, uh, you it's high seas and uh, the seabed and the area of the deep seabed, called the, the area by the convention, uh, is uh, common heritage of mankind. Um, again, just a little brief half. So we're measuring these zones from the baselines, the normal baseline, and I'll be talking about the wording of Article 5 a little bit, but normal baseline is the low water mark, easy to remember because it means you get the, bet, the biggest area, right? That's the basic way it was negotiated. Uh, normal baseline is, uh, uh, is low water mark, but where you've got uh, deeply indented cut into coasts, Anglo-Norwegian fisheries case, you can draw straight baselines, you can draw them across the mouths of rivers, you've got, you can join up reefs, uh, you can draw them across bays, you'll remember the complicated prism for doing that, and if you've got an archipelagic state, you can draw a line around it. So those are the basic methods that you can use to do it. So the, the only key, the key point to, to note here is one is that it's the low watermark, and the other is that you're allowed to use some of these features to actually... Uh, to draw the baselines from as well. And we think, um, you know, the, uh, the hydrographers, the geographers uh, in our group, uh, think that the chances of reaching a point where an island will completely disappear is not going to happen in the next 150 years, probably. It might become uninhabitable for reasons of loss of water and that sort of thing. But what we are going to get is the loss of these points. So states that measure their... Uh, measure their baselines, we, we will see movement of the low water mark, and we'll see a loss of these points. And that's likely to happen pretty soon. Because uh, when they were negotiating the convention back in the, in the 1930 um, discussions of this, and then it was reflected in the 50 and the 58 convention, the discussion was between the geographers who were saying, when you're drawing these lines, you really want to make sure these are really substantial pieces of land that we can mark for the future. And the politicians, who said, no, we just want to get as much as possible. So they went for drying reefs and low tide elevations to draw their, their baselines from and to include them. And the result is those are the guys that are going to be, we're going to be losing, we think, fairly soon. Um, okay, so again, lovely graphics here. So this is fairly obvious, isn't it? So as the tide comes in, you lose the coconut trees as well. We have landward inputs, landward uh, impacts as well on coastal areas, but we also... The traditional concept would be that uh, all the zones would move up the, up the beach. 
uh, and this is, I love this cartoon, but it is pretty vivid. This is why it's important, because ultimately, with the sorts of sea level rise that we're probably committed to already, that's what's most disturbing. I'm talking about the figures for 2100, but even if we, even if the US were to step up and do what it's had pledged to do, even if the Paris Agreement is, is beefed up so that we actually can keep it below, keep uh, uh, um, temperature rises below 2 degrees centigrade, and we're not on path to do that yet, but if we can, if, we're, if we were able to do that, it, we still can't stop the next two or three hundred years. It will continue. This is one of the, it's one of the more disturbing aspects, I think, of impacts. So just a brief reminder about um, the normal baseline under the Sea Convention. Um, I'm uh, unusual, my journal's unusual as well. We call it the Law of the Sea Convention, not UNCLOS, because for uh, um, theological reasons, we think UNCLOS is the, the, the conference, and so therefore we shouldn't call it UNCLOS, but I see the UN has overtaken us, but we can stand in this position. We're maintaining it, we may have to give up at some point. But. So under the Law of the Sea Convention, Article 5, and this is what the Baseline Committee was working with, it says, except where otherwise provided in this convention, and my underlining here, the normal baseline for measuring the breadth of the territorial sea is the low water line for the reasons we discussed. Uh, as marked on a large scale chart, and there's been some debates what large scale chart means, whether it means it's a big map or whether it's a small map with covers a large area, it's not clear. There's lawyers drafting using uh, geographer's language. And it says officially recognised by the coastal state. I live in the US. This tells me it's misspelled every time I put this slide up. But that's the way it's spelled. Um, and this is so. It's the point is that it should be officially recognised by the coastal state. So you can take the view, and this is not the view of the baseline committee take, that if the coastal says state says where its baseline is on its map, that's where they are. Right? We come back to that. So the baseline committee really wound up its, wound up its mo uh, most of its work in 2012 at the SOFIA conference. It gave a report, which is actually really interesting. Um, and it says where significant, one well, part of this, I'll read all of it, but where significant physical changes have occurred so the chart doesn't provide an accurate representation of the actual low water line at the chosen vertical datum, extrinsic evidence has been considered by international courts and tribunals to determine the location of the legal normal baseline. So if your charts don't reflect reality, they claim, there's some evidence in the report, that the, if you like, customary rule is that courts and tribunals will look to see where it is and they'll use that as the low watermark. Right, so that, that's an ambulatory baseline, so it'll move with the coast. Some, some of the committee members disagreed. They came from states which actually had different, different positions on their, on their charts, but actually one of them was the Netherlands. Quite interesting. So that's, so that's the basic point, that these coastal baselines are ambulatory. Uh, and so in extreme circumstances, they point out, a, total, a change could result in total territorial loss and the loss of baselines and the maritime zones measured from those baselines. And what they said, which is... Prescient, I think, the existing law of the normal baseline, which they found, they having found that it's ambulatory, does not offer an adequate solution to this potentially serious problem. So um, if you look at customary international law, we haven't got an answer because we never 
have actually had to address this before. Uh, so what they say is that coastal states can protect and preserve territory through physical reinforcement. And you take the Netherlands as an example, you can defend it. You're allowed to do that, you're allowed to, and you're allowed to reclaim as well. I mean, some issues we know from the, uh, from the issues in the, uh, between Singapore and its neighbours, but you're allowed to defend, you're allowed to extend. The whole a quarter of the Netherlands is, is area that was reclaimed, maybe even a half of the Netherlands, um, uh, but not through the legal fiction of a chartered line that's unrepresentative. So they say it's illegal for you to actually try and stick with the charter. So that's their view of that committee, right? So, uh, and they recommend that the issue of uh, impacts of substantial territorial loss resulting from sea level rise be considered further by a committee established for the purpose, which is great, which is our committee. Um, yeah, okay, so that's where we come in then. So the two things that they, we particularly asked to look at, and that's what the baseline committee particularly asked us to look at, the outer limits of states' maritime zones, which are based on the baseline. And then what about maritime boundaries which are negotiated on the basis of existing baselines, which they all are, right? Um, particularly if they change, and we haven't had major changes yet, but if they change, is that, for example, a fundamental change of circumstance which would allow you to set aside, arguably, allow you to set aside the Rabel Six Standards Principle, or you set aside the, the treaty on debate on that basis? Now, the, the Vienna, you're going to quote me the Vienna Convention. Vienna Convention allows boundaries, it exempts boundaries, boundary treaties from that, from the use of that. But it doesn't say maritime boundary treaties. So, all right. <laughs> That's why we're in business, guys. Um, so, some of our, the scholars have written on this. One, Fred Soans, a professor, used to be the professor, the head of the Netherlands Institute for the Law of the Sea, written about this in 91. That's his inaugural lecture. It's been around a long time, this issue. <coughs> and Netherlands, as we've said, is an example of a place that's actually spent a huge amount of money defending this. Uh, he says, rather than building coastal defences, which you can do, you're allowed to do, um, uh, a less expensive but probably less dependable means for states to prevent negative consequences uh, is to contribute towards the creation of a new rule of customary international law which allows coastal states, in the case of sea level rise, to maintain the original outer limits of their zones. So, quite prescient in, in writing in 1991. That is a long time ago, sorry. But they need, obviously, in order for, you've got to have a rule of customary law, you've got to gain approval for this practice by appropriate international fora. Now, without giving the ILA more uh, laudits and it's entitled to, it actually has been one of those fora which has in the past helped to contribute towards customary rules. So this is why it's quite really, really excited about the work of this committee. Um, Rosemary Rafius from uh, University of New South Wales as well talked about the freezing of maritime zones, uh, outer limits that they said would be consistent uh, with the promotion of the objectives of the Law of Sea Convention, peace, stability, certainty and fairness. Uh, and there's actually been one of the Judge Yezel, Jesus from the, uh, from the uh, Cape Verde Islands has actually said it would be outrageous to take states' entitlements away. So there's been quite a lot of writing about this. Schofield, and who we just were talking about, preferable approach would be, they suggest, to seek a multilateral agreement on a revising a legal green uh, regime applicable to normal baselines. 
Well, those of you who've actually looked at the amendment provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention just don't go there, right? It's a nightmare. Um, there was a very good symposium, Verzal for the symposium about 10 years ago, where um, I was actually contributed to. We actually looked at the amendment procedure, and it is horrific. So given that we had difficulty enough to get the convention into force, we probably don't want to go there. Uh, so that's out of the, the answer. I can look at some, some specific suggestions and where we're going with this. But the other issue is maritime boundaries. Um, and there are some paradoxes with this, right? Because you negotiate a maritime boundary. If you, if you're, you and your neighbour, maybe neighbours, conclude a boundary, it's only binding on uh, the states that are parties to it. It's not binding on third parties. Uh, and if you've negotiated the boundary... Uh, which was, say, that you were exactly 400 miles apart and you negotiated a boundary down the middle and you're, you each lose 10 miles, you've suddenly got a bit in the middle which is possibly high sea. So there are actually third-party interests maybe involved in that. Um, uh, David Caron, he's actually in favour of this. He said his state can't argue that the circumstances changed which they hadn't foreseen. So he doesn't take that view, but, and so does Lusthaus take the same view. Um, so I'm quoted here, and I quote myself because I get some stick later on, so just to flag it up. And Clive Schofield, he, citing me, said, we said maritime boundaries once made belong to that class of treaty of the validity of which is not affected by fundamental change of circumstances, naively thinking that because it says boundaries it would include maritime boundaries. So it's not quite as crystal clear, but it's not quite as bad as it. So those, this is what we were looking at. So it's a new committee, so we're not going to go back and say, actually, we disagree with the baseline committee that they're not, ban, man, they're not ambulatory, if only because four or five of the members of that committee are on ours. But we're not, that's not our business. We've been asked to look at progressive development. Um, so what, what we are doing is considering... Well, didn't mean to do that. So what we are doing is considering the advantages of ambulatory or fixed baselines, right? Fixed down to limits, so is that a good thing? And you can see that way you would go with this if you can fix the outer limits. Um, think of that cartoon, right, the disappearing state. If you can fix the limits, then as the state's territory gets smaller and smaller, those limits still apply. And what about this large question is when they does disappear, does that zone still belong to the island state or the coastal state which previously owned it? We haven't got there yet because we have to get... It's like herding cats, you can imagine. 20 professors is not exactly... Kind of it's, we take us some time to get there, but we haven't quite got there yet. But you can see where, we, where we're likely to go with that. And then uh, how might you fix those lines? And then with maritime boundaries, this is the issue of the Vienna Convention, is sea level rise a fundamental change of circumstances? So in a way, from what I've been saying and the portentous way I've been describing these effects, I've been saying it is like a fundamental change, but I don't really think it should be. Right? So we're in a little bit of a d diplomatic quandary as opposed to maybe a legal quandary. So there's some politics involved in that, the way you present it. Uh, in the meantime, some things have happened, and there's this, my Polynesian isn't uh, terribly good. I can say, uh, um, uh, I can't pronounce the name of the uh, Northern Hawaiian Islands uh, uh, Reserve, which I'm not going to do, bit, but this is the Tapu Tapatuitia Declaration on Climate Change. And it's a, they're, they're the, uh, the English of this isn't, isn't amazing. Uh, but seven leaders of Polynesian states, these are them. The French Polynesia, of course, which is still dependent. And uh, Nui, the Cook Islands, which is still dependent. You know, 
independent status with, with New Zealand, Samoa, which is independent, Tokelau, which is independent status, Tonga and Tuvalu, independent states. So those are countries, Polynesian countries, they acknowledge that under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which they call UNCLOS, like everybody else, the importance of the exclusive economic zones of the Polynesian islands and territories, whose area is calculated according to emerged lands. This is where the English goes a bit funny. This is verbatim. And permanently establish the baselines in accordance with UNCLOS, with the UNCLOS, without taking into account sea level rise. So that basically they're saying, we're not going to take into account changes. So that's a pretty strong statement. Uh, and there's been a program which has been financed by uh, largely by the Australians but through the South Pacific Forum where they've been helping the, Poland, the South Pacific Islands to negotiate their maritime boundaries. Part of that was because they need to claim ex uh, extended continental shelves, they need to get, get the boundaries in, the baseline, get the boundaries into the, to the Commission on uh, continental shelf, you know, there's deadlines, uh, but it also has a sea level rise component. They, the Australians are proposing that they should actually set these, set these boundaries. Um, and so here's a quite a good example of a, of a change in Marshall Islands had a maritime, it's, a, it's an archipelagic state, it had its archipelagic baselines, it had all its boundaries, and then it's done new legislation. Uh, and it's, it says its purpose is to provide clarity and certainty in its jurisdictional. But it's absolutely amazingly meticulous. 450 pages of coordinates and maps, etc., so and the basic implication of this is we're not going anywhere after this. Once we've done all this work, this is where, where we say the geological unit supporting the work in Australia takes the same view of the Australian lines. So we're suggesting, or I have suggested and others agree, that this is the latest development in an emerging pattern of practice in the Pacific where the states are unilaterally declaring and publicising their, you know, their maritime zones. So all of them, they're freezing them. So we're a little bit behind the curve, so we're going to move on to that. So coming on to where we are with this, but just to show off some more of his, his mm. graphics. Uh, so this, if when you might you do that again. So the basic way you do it is fixed arcs. This is where you use the first watermark. So that's your basic line there. Use salient base points. If the land goes back, there we are. You have to redraw it and and that's the bit you lose. Uh, so that's so. There's some issues with this, right? You know, people have to know that this is. Um, they like you're likely to run into disputes with navigational states. They're very keen on their navigational rights. Don't have to say who they are. Um, uh, you have to talk. There's issues of jurisdictional uncertainty, and this is going to be a continual process. Um, and something. The paradox of this is. If you did what the geographers had told you to do early on and chosen big fixed points, you probably wouldn't be running into difficulty. So this is actually quite a good example. This is from Clive Schofield again. Uh, all right, so that's, that's your zone. Now you get, see, you get erosion. Points haven't moved, you see. So, so that's, you, your base points have stayed there, so you're actually your zone remains the same. Right, so back to what we're trying to do is, what should we do? If we're going to suggest, make a proposal de lege ferenda, should we suggest freezing of baselines? Or should we, and you see that both, you may not pick up the point, but, but Fred Soane's talked about outer limits, and so did Rosemary Rayfuss talked about freezing outer limits. So which is the most, uh, the best 
proposal, if you like, to recommend. So this is really what our committee's been looking at uh, the last year. And this sort of gives you an example of this. So there's, you know, that's your internal waters which you have from your baseline. If you freeze it, so your territorial sea, and you so make one of them uh, remain. And then this is a good graphic. See, so the sea level rises and the area behind your baseline has got bigger. Now, you can think of some of the implications of that. It means your charts are not accurate. But this is probably an area which is not going to have a lot of nav international navigation, right? So you're likely to run, not run so foul of your neighbours, because it's going to be fairly shallow, and you've respected the law of the sea convention in relation to the width of these zones. Uh, so that's like a summary of these. So you can argue that freezing, this is the point I made about Article 5, you can argue that you, you're allowed, Article 5 says on charts, you know, officially recognised by the coastal state, so even though the baseline committee has said they're ambulatory, there is a defensible position under the Law of the Sea Convention. So it's arguably permitted. Uh, it means the coastal states defined its baselines with national legislation, it doesn't have to keep changing them. The outer limits remain the same because the baselines remain the same. Uh, it doesn't lose any of its claims. And you know it's the vulnerable states who didn't contribute to this who are going to be the well, mostly going to be the ones who aren't. So there's a kind of equity issue there too. But against it, it's actually a legal fiction and the Baseline Committee didn't like it. And they're very distinguished members of the Baseline Committee. And there are possible risks to navigation. Perhaps not as much as we say, but the charts can be issued for specific purposes. Entrances to, to uh, ports, etc. And then there is perhaps the fact that here's a global public goods issue because the area you're keeping would otherwise become high seas. So that's a sort of summary of the issues. And then the other, the other ways you can freeze the outer limit, so there are two examples here. One is, a, is, a, is the uh, territorial sea, um, and the other is, and if you freeze the territorial sea, you do actually freeze the outer limit as well, because it's 188 miles from the outside edge of it. So there, sea level rises, and then internal waters remain fine, but you have an issue. We have a territorial sea that's actually wider than 12 miles. Right, and so the next example, I don't make too much of this, it's probably fairly obvious. Well, let me turn, sorry, just, just uh, and here, if you do it, if you freeze the outer limit, you and don't freeze the territorial sea, you've got a specific economic zone that's in breach of the convention provisions. Right, so that's the other side. So, um, again, the pro is charted limits remain the same, reflects ambulatory baselines, which makes that baseline committee happy, but you don't need to necessarily do that. Mariners are aware of the actual coastline, uh, same issue of protection, but the, the, main, the big argument against it is that you've got an instant violation of the Law of Sea Convention, either 12, more than 12 miles or it's more than, more than 200 miles, and you've prevented you know, global public good. So that's the basic issue. So without hot off the presses, we're still having our residual arguments, there's a fairly strong contingent within the, in the group that's arguing for outer limits, and I think we've uh, we've basically come to the view that you, that it, that the um, that those that the, these arguments are actually quite difficult, you know, because it means that there'd be a lot of uncertainty about the width of zones. They'd be changing all the time, and states would probably not keep up with them. And so there's actually a lot to be said for baselines being frozen. That's probably the recommendation that we. This is going to be podcast, so. 
careful with this, but that's probably the recommendation we're coming from. That's the majority view at the moment. Okay, and then I, I ought to have just five minutes to, to finish up. Um, content shelf claims, you saw this, this, client, this slide already. Um, uh, I, I didn't make the point that, of course, uh, if, you, if you make an outer limit of your content shelf determination on the